So with that being said, I want to jump right in, and uh, today we're just going to be looking at the subject or the teaching of baptism. We've been going through a series now um, in the Gospel of John. Today we're going to shift from that a little bit today and just kind of focus on the, the teaching of baptism. This is kind of like a one-up special message to just really focus on this particular topic and to consider it, to think about it. It's one of the practices that we see that, that Christians have done literally from the very beginning. So what I would hope to do this morning would to kind of give a little bit of a biblical framework as to what baptism is all about, why we do it, um, why it's a significant part of the life of a follower of Jesus. So how about we, first of all, begin with a definition. So I got all this stuff up on the screen. Let's just begin with a definition. I'm going to be borrowing this from what's called the New City Catechism. If you're unfamiliar with that, you can go to the Gospel Coalition. It's just a great catechism that kind of outlines all this uh, amazing uh, stuff of the Christian faith. So I'll just kind of read this, and then we'll kind of go on from there. Um, baptism is the, is the washing with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It signifies... And seals our adoption into Christ, our cleansing from sin, and our commitment to belong to the Lord and to his church. So it's kind of wordy, uh, but specifically so. I'm going to read it again so that you can just think about it as I read it again slowly. Baptism is the washing with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It signifies... I like that word signifies because in that word signifies is the word sign, sign. It's a sign that points to something. It signifies and seals our adoption into Christ, our cleansing from sin, and our commitment to belong to the Lord and to his church. So I want to shift gears now a little bit and talk a little bit about uh, design patterns. If you guys are familiar with the Bible Project, they do a lot of lengthy detail work on uh kind of tracing back this idea of design patterns throughout the Bible. And what I want to do right now is I'm going to think about some design patterns that specifically have to do with the uh, subject matter of baptism, kind of follow this throughout the Bible. The Bible has a very lengthy history of design patterns that specifically are kind of leading up to this action that we see articulated through the life of Jesus and the practice by everyone who follows Jesus all the way to this present day. Now, again, that doesn't mean that Christians are uniform when it comes to exactly what baptism is in terms of like what it accomplishes and what it's for and what its purpose is and all that. Christians have a very, very rich and diverse history of having uh, strong opinions and ideas and disagreements to some degree. Um, But I think one thing that every Christian would, for the most part, uh, identify and agree with is that baptism is... Important. It's extremely important. In fact, I would go as far as to say that um, if you're part of a tradition or a Christian idea or ideology that does not view it as important, um, then that, that, that's a little bit of a break from what Christians have traditionally and historically have always sensed with regard to the idea of uh, baptism. So let's talk a little bit about design patterns. So what I have written down here is this, uh, a design pattern is basically a repeated image, idea, or event that through different stories, each develop a core theme ultimately that leads to Jesus. So another way to put it, I just put up here, that God brings new life through chaotic waters. So just hold on to that idea. God brings new life through chaotic waters. You guys got that? God brings new life through chaotic waters. That's going to be a theme that we're going to see repeated over and over and over again throughout really the entire Bible from the very opening sequence of events in Genesis chapter 1 all the way through the person of Jesus, 
all the way through to people that follow Jesus today to, to today. Like literally right now, people that get baptized, whether it be, you know, here in California or next week at our baptism or in Syria or Iran as in the underground church or in China or in North Korea or South Korea, wherever people are calling upon the name of Jesus, they will at some point enter into this process of actually getting baptized. And it all is linked to this train of design patterns that we'll take a look at here this morning. So you guys ready for a journey? All right, go ahead and if you want, open up the Genesis chapter one. We're going to take a look at the creation. Genesis chapter one, the creation. And I'm going to go through this fairly quickly, so you'll need to keep up. So the beginning sequence is the idea of creation. And I've worked really hard to try to get all of this stuff into like one sentence. You're welcome. So um, the way I'm going to go through this, I'm going to just identify this, look at this, I'll read the sentence. We'll go on to the very next thing. If you want to uh, write notes, uh, my recommendation is just either take a snapshot or a picture of this um, or write down the notes of the specific text and you can go back and look at them on your own time. I'm not going to necessarily read through every single one of them. But number one is to take a look at creation. So in the very beginning, God creates the heaven and the earth. And one of the things that we notice is that God's spirit, we're told, very at the very beginning, hovers over the face of the deep, separating the dark, chaotic waters from the habitable, life-giving space. So habitable space is what we see from the very beginning. Um, God creates and separates water, chaotic waters, from habitable space. So the human beings can then live on this planet and be productive and uh, bear fruit and have children and do all the stuff that God had intended for them to do. So that's the first idea that I want you to consider and think about. Now skip forward to Genesis chapter 6. This begins to take a look at a character by the name of Noah. Most of you guys are familiar with this story. If you've grown up in a church or have had any form of like connection with like Sunday school, you know the story of Noah. Probably a very sanitized and very G-rated version of the story of Noah. It was not a G-rated story in the Bible. It's very, very dark and very bad. But the underlying theme is that God carries Noah and his family through the chaotic waters, ultimately bringing them to new life. That's the essential story, that God was at work uh, carrying Noah through the waters. He didn't rescue him out of it. He didn't take him to another world and says, we're going to bomb this world, I'm going to get you out of this world and bring you back in this world. God carries them through the chaotic waters on into life. Skip forward to Exodus chapter 14. Uh, we're going to look at the story of the life of Exodus, or what's commonly known as the Exodus, of the people of Israel. So again, we're covering literally hundreds of years of history right now. We're just time traveling. Um, some of you guys like time traveling. I'm actually reading a really cool book right now. It's, I decided to go back and to read uh, the trilogy of uh, the Space Series by C.S. Lewis. Have you guys ever, anybody read that? So good. I'm like on Paralandra right now. I've never read Paralandra. I don't know how I like missed that, but it's blowing my mind. And um, it's all about space travel. So that's kind of what we're doing right now. We're space traveling in the Bible. So anyways, um, Exodus chapter 14, we're told about the people of Israel. Uh, they had gone down to Egypt. They basically fell under the oppression, the tyranny of Pharaoh. Uh, it was a dark season of their entire history, but God was good. He carried them. He loved them. He was their God. And God makes this promise to them, I'm going to deliver you. God raises up a guy named Moses. Moses then carries them um, out of Egypt um, through what we commonly read as 
the, the, the Red Sea. Um, so this is where we kind of get to Exodus chapter 14. God rescues Israel from Pharaoh's oppression by leading them through the chaotic waters of the Red Sea. And again, this is one of those stories that sometimes can be a little bit G-rated, maybe PG-rated, depending upon your children's ministry. Um, but again, probably very dark, evil, like, scenarios going on. I mean, dark in a sense where it's like people are dying. It's just this gnarly of what's happening here. But God was rescuing um, a community of people that were under oppression, that were being tormented, that were being destroyed by a dark oppressor. Skip forward, again, a few a few generations, I would say, into the life of Joshua. So Joshua chapter 3, um, God brings the people of Israel um, out of Egypt. They wander in this place called the wilderness. Uh, think of the desert. Think if you, again, I've mentioned this before, but think of like the highway, Highway 46 between Paso Robles and Bakersfield. Just that entire stretch of just sheer nothingness on oh, the tumbleweed and and that literally is like the wilderness where the people of israel lived for uh, an entire generation 40 years that we're told that they lived out there it was chaotic um it was not filled with blessing and life and goodness so god did take care of them god provided streams of water in the desert god gave them food manna from the heavens god took care of them he sustained them however it was a it was a dark chaotic water that they found themselves in the midst of in this wilderness. And so God brings the people of Israel from the wilderness and is about to bring them into what we commonly known as the promised land. And God does this by way of using this man by the name of Joshua. And we're told in Joshua chapter three that what happens, God says, I want you to walk through the Jordan River. So again, pay attention to the name, the Jordan River. God calls him to walk the people of Israel through they walk through on dry ground. Again, there's a whole procession about this. But what we're told about this is that God led Israel from the desert wilderness into the promised land by passing through the Jordan River on dry ground. So again, the theme of God doing this work of bringing new life and salvation through chaotic waters. Skip on hundreds of years forward now into the life of a guy by the name of John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, if you're familiar with him. Um, Matthew chapter 3, if you want to turn there. Um, we're told about this guy. He was essentially this preacher uh, who radical, like punk rock rebel that turned against all of the other typical uh, traditionalists of his day. And he goes out and kind of does this counter temple movement out in the wilderness. Again, if you've ever like studied the life of, of John the Baptist, why is he not... You know, in Jerusalem, in the temple, doing all the temple stuff that all the other good Jewish leaders and religious followers of Yahweh were doing. John sees himself as a really unique voice um, that essentially pulls away from all of that, goes down to, guess where? The Jordan River. Why the Jordan River? Because John's basically reenacting something. It's kind of like street art, street Theatrics. John's basically recreating a scenario that would have been familiar to the people of Israel's history. And we just read it in the story of Exodus, but specifically in the story of Joshua, where they were coming out of the wilderness on into the promised land. So here's John, hundreds of years later, reenacting, recreating basically this, this entire same situation. But what John's doing is he's calling people uh, into a state of renewal of their covenantal identity. As the people of God, if you want to put it in air quotes, uh, by practicing repentance and water baptism. Why is John doing this? Because John recognizes that what happened, just like happens throughout all history, is that 
people can have and start with a particular vision about what um, the good life is or what Christianity is all about or following Jesus. So they might be raised up in a really good family. You might have been a really good mom that imparted uh, good godly ideas and thoughts and concepts into the lives of your children. But your children have wondered. And that's painful. It's extremely painful to watch children make choices again and again throughout life that lead away from Jesus, that lead into brokenness. And that's extremely painful. But the fact of the matter is, is that what John's doing is he's calling people back to say, hey, don't forget your identity. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget to whom you belong. Yahweh God has stepped into your lives, in your past, through your history, by the, through the legacy that you have inherited. In other words, he's, John's basically saying, you today are here because of a legacy that you've inherited. You might not be aware of that legacy. You may not be cognizant of that legacy. You may not even be grateful for that legacy. But you are here today because of that legacy. Yahweh God has done something on your behalf. And what John's doing is he's, he's inviting people back to rediscover and to live into the identity that God himself has given them. This is a really interesting thing to consider, especially, I think, in our culture today, where, again, much of our culture today is all about erasing, condemning, um, uh, critiquing any form of legacy that we once had or our historical values or our moorings or tradition. And, And there's a tendency to think really negatively upon you know, mom and dad or any form of, um, uh, uh, I guess, leading figures within your life. And this idea of just being your own self-created human being, becoming your autonomous self, uh, your actuated self, however you want to describe it. But what ends up happening is we become people that we, I think, get fatigued by way of the choices that are available to us. And then we just kind of lose ourselves. Our identity gets lost. As a loss of our identity also goes out the door, our, our value of uh, meaning and purpose in life. And before you know it, we're really just a community of people that have no idea who we are. We have this collective sense of amnesia. We don't know who we are. What John was doing is he was calling these people out of this collective amnesia and saying, guys, remember who you are. Remember what God has done. How is he calling them back into that? Get baptized. Why is he doing that? It's a way of saying, remember your forefathers. They were brought out of the wilderness through the Jordan River on into the promised land. John's literally doing the exact same thing as a way of just saying, you are God's people. Don't ever forget that. That's an important word, I think, especially for our culture today. It's like, if you forget who you are, where you came from, the identity that you've been given then you will have to at some point try to find and craft another form of identity. But the question is, is how's it going for you? How sustainable is that? How life-giving is that? How much hope does that provide for your soul? And what John is calling them to is to receive this identity as opposed to craft an identity. And then on forward, just a little bit, a few months specifically in the timeline, to the life of Jesus. And this is Mark chapter 1, like verses 9 through 11. And I'll just kind of read a little bit of a selective uh, passage of this. And essentially tells us that Jesus was baptized. Uh, Then we're told that the Spirit of God descended like a dove upon him as he uh, ascended out of the water. And then we're told that God speaks. 
And God speaks to his son, Jesus, and says, you are my beloved son, and I'm well pleased with you. And what we see here with this particular event, that Jesus himself gets baptized. And again, this raises a lot of questions. Like, why did Jesus get baptized? Did Jesus need to remember his identity? Did Jesus forget? Did Jesus have amnesia? Did Jesus sin? Was there anything that Jesus needed to be repenting of? The answer to all that, obviously, is no. Jesus knew exactly who he was. He was sinless. He was always consistently walking in obedience to God. So again, this raises the questions that a lot of scholars and theologians have tried to ponder over the years. And uh, the, the best way I would just kind of give an answer to this is that what Jesus seems to be doing is he seems to be saying, I am identifying my mission, my role, my identity with God's people. As broken as they are, as prone and subject they are to amnesia and loss of identity, as prone and subject they are towards entering into uh, places of temptation and sin, Jesus seems to be saying, I'm, I'm coming into this world as one that's deeply aware of that state and the condition of human being for the purpose of saying, I've come to rescue and redeem and heal and bring hope. So Jesus himself then gets baptized. And last thing, just kind of like a little bit of a freebie, we see within, throughout the remainder of the New Testament, um, one of the great examples of preaching, like in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, uh, Peter, the apostle, stands up and he preaches uh, about the good news of Jesus, that Jesus had come, he died, he rose again from the dead, he's alive. And what Peter says, essentially, in this message, when people kind of ask him, like, hey, what should we do about the message? In other words, we want an action item. What are some action item steps that we can actually take? And here's what Peter says. The action items that you can take is this. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, if you're taking notes, it says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is Peter's invitation to essentially say, here's what it looks like to act upon this information. So again, we, uh, for the most part, we are an evangelical uh, Protestant, meaning we're not Catholic, we're not Eastern Orthodox, we're not Anglican, we are Protestant. Uh, we have are part of the stream of historical faith, which, what, what, in short, what that typically means is that we have this tendency to pull away from certain types of rituals, of which sometimes baptism becomes one of those things where it's just ritualistic, and there's a tendency to kind of think really lightly or poorly about certain rituals. And what I would suggest to all of us as a community that that we need to first of all begin with the Bible. Like what does scripture teach? And what it teaches is that baptism has this lengthy history that we just kind of went through very quickly, very 30,000 feet above the Bible. Um, but it takes form and shape through New Testament characters like John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, all New Testament writers, and the invitation is to say, now, as a follower of Jesus, here's what you are invited to actually do. Now, to be clear, our salvation, our life, is not something that you and I do. Any more than a child is responsible for bringing themselves into this world. That was the result of an incredibly self-giving mother. Thank you, moms. It had nothing to do with the child. It was, it was all an act of incredible sacrifice. And in the same way, we don't bring about our own salvation, our own life. It's something that God himself gives. Our response is to acknowledge the fact that we are human, that God is God, 
He's the life giver. We're the life receivers. And the way that we identify that we've connected with that life or received that life or living that life is we repent and are baptized. And so repentance oftentimes is one of these words that gets weaponized. And depending upon the various brand of Christian circles that maybe you've been brought up in. And that's unfortunate because the word repentance really is this word that just uh, declares this concept of turning away or pivoting from a former storyline or former narrative on into an entirely new narrative that is a life-giving narrative versus a narrative that's just self-centered or egotistic or narcissistic. And it's turning to a new life. That comes from God. That's what repentance means. It's basically says to turn away from something that's going to lead to a path of brokenness and death. To turn to the life that God himself is giving. And then he goes on to say, repent and be baptized. So baptism was always a part of this action of followers of Jesus. So if I can put it this way, Christianity doesn't necessarily um, avoid chaos. It affirms the fact that there's chaos in this world. But it also shows us that God carries us through that chaos on to the other side. How do we know this? Because of the prototype. <laughs> Who's the prototype? And I say prototype with a capital P prototype. Jesus is the prototype. He is the one that's coming in this world that suffered chaos. That's what happened on the cross. He bore in himself, in his body, the chaos, the brokenness, the destruction, the forces of anti-creation that were at work. And as a result of that, he died. He was buried in a tomb three days, but then rose again. And as a result of rising again, proving his victory over the grave, over sin and death, and then ultimately bringing people that follow him into newness of life. So if I can put it even more succinctly and simply, those that follow Jesus ultimately get baptized, just like he himself was baptized. Physically, in water, but then also baptized into death, but then ultimately into life. Followers of Jesus will get baptized. Does baptism save us? No, it's, it's, it's an act. But it demonstrates the fact that we have actually been acted upon by God and saved. So that's what baptism is really all about. Now I want to return back to essentially the summary that we had started with. Uh, or finish with this little summary, which is kind of that little definition. So I want to read this again, and we're just going to finish with basically three uh, bullet points that can maybe be derived from this. So, so again, listen to this. Baptism is the washing with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It signifies and seals our adoption into Christ, our cleansing from sin, and our commitment to belong to the Lord and his church. So I think of this in three basic headings. Number one, it refers to this rescue of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. If you had noticed that, it's really significant. As followers of Jesus, we believe in what we would describe or historically been identified as the Trinity. This one God, single God, one God, identified by way of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What we see in that is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have been working together on your behalf to rescue Christians always have always historically believed this triune nature of God working on their behalf to bring about the rescue. Now, again, some of you might think, well, I thought God was out to destroy me. That's been a misperception. That's propaganda. That's fake news. That's false. God is actually your savior. He's not your destroyer. That's really very good news. 
Don't believe the propaganda. How do we know that he's a savior? Just look at the cross. It tells us everything we need to know. This is the level to which this God is for you. And so the second thing we notice is that baptism also has to do with washing and cleansing from sin. If you want to write down another passage to maybe spend a little bit more time reading, uh, write down Romans chapter 6. It goes into a little bit more length, this idea of sin. Now again, sin is something that we as human beings, we grapple with, we deal with. Um, and it's, again, sin is a three-letter word that we oftentimes love to hate. It gets a lot of bad publicity. But in a short, sin is in essence what the book of John describes is it's lawlessness. It's us creating a law for ourselves, unto ourselves, for our own purposes, to our own end. And as a result of that, it creates brokenness and chaos. It unleashes chaos into this world, the very chaos that ultimately put Jesus on the cross. So it brings about brokenness to our own lives. We sin against other people. We've been sinned against by other people. Some of you bear deep trauma and pain and hardships as a result of other people's sin against you. Sin is real. Sin is a malady. It's a disease. It's a disease in this world that Jesus has come to do something about. And what we see is there's all, all sorts of metaphors to describe what it does. But one of those is that it makes us defiled or dirty. And as a result of that, there is a need for getting washed and cleansed. And lo and behold, that's what baptism is. We go into water, not fire. It's not a baptism through fire. Thank God for that. It's a baptism in water. I don't think we recover from fire, but we will recover from water. And I always tell people this when we baptize. We put you down. This is not a drowning. We will bring you back up again. Because that's what Jesus does. He doesn't leave you dead. Sin doesn't have the ultimate say. Life does. This is a God that comes to take sin and death and destruction and judgment and ruin and bring about wholeness and life and goodness and washing and cleansing from sin. And lastly, we see that another final summary is this idea of new life and identity in Jesus. So Jesus comes, he brings new life, but he also, as a little last line right there says, and our commitment to belong to the Lord and to his church. You cannot separate Jesus from his church. It's very popular in our world today to be like, I love Jesus. I hate Christians. I love Jesus. I don't ever want to go to church because Christians annoy me. I'm sorry to tell you, break it to you. That is a complete fabrication and reformation of a Christian Christianity that is suitable to our modern day sensibilities. It is not historic biblical Christianity. I get it. I've been doing ministry for 30 years. Christians are annoying. I, I'm not going to argue with you on that. Christians hurt people. I have insane amounts of trauma and battle scars that I share with my wife of 30 years of ministry. I have never been more hurt or wounded by anybody else other than Christians throughout my life. I got a lot of it. And when I'm done being pastor here at some point, I'll spend a lot of time working through my own trauma. But until then, what I'm saying right now is I get the argument Christians are probably very problematic. I get it. But they belong to Jesus. They are his church. They're his family. He loves them. He loves you. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we have a family. Yes, they may be annoying. Yes, they may be embarrassing. Yes, they may cause trauma. Yes, they may cause layers upon layers of headache and rapid-fire wounding. But at the end of the day, Christianity invites us to align our lives under the headship of Jesus, but also within to a community of 
saints, community of God's people, to do life together, to work through our pain, our pain, our hardships, our challenges, our difficulties together, to find grace from this God that loves us as we orient our lives around King Jesus as our ultimate supreme Lord over all things. And this is really the summary of what it means to be baptized. It all has to do, again, with the rescue that God offers, the washing and cleansing, the new life, and the identification of saying, I belong to this community. This is my tribe. These are my people. That might feel like a weird thing to say, because for some of us, we've focused a long time on alienation and removal and isolation. But now might be your time to say, what I want to do is I want to live into all that Jesus has. And it involves all of these things. And it's profound. And it's beautiful. It's good. It's very hard. But life-giving at the end of the day. So what I want to do right now is I'm going to show you a little video, um, as I mentioned, of what our baptisms are like. This was taken from a few years back. So enjoy it. And then I'll close with some final thoughts. Life in Jesus. Jesus not only gives new life, Jesus washes and cleanses us, Jesus brings people into a brand new family, and, and that's, that's what baptism is all about. And that's what makes this whole event so powerful and transforming, because every human being has a sense of being broken, and filthy, and dirty. Every human being has a sense of feeling alienated or lost, and every human being has a sense of dealing with death. And yet Jesus undoes all that, and that's the story of the gospel in short. And we get to celebrate that in every person that gets baptized. Proclaim you to demonstrate the fact that they are following you, that demonstrate the fact that you have acted on their behalf, that you've washed them, that you have cleansed them, that you have taken them from alienation into a family, that you have given them life in exchange for death. And so, God, we pray right now that as they go in the water, as they come back out, that it would just be the recognition of a brand new life that they have to live ahead of them. So there you go. I'm going to show you a little slide last slide for the baptism. If um, you would like to get baptized, just go ahead and whip out your phone right there and go ahead and uh, scan the little QR code and some little questions for you to answer. You can do that now or even a little bit later. Um, But my hope would be, like I said, if you are someone that has never been baptized, that you would seriously take consideration in lining your life up with this historic community of God's people worldwide and throughout 2,000 years of history to say, that's, those are my people. That's my tribe. That's my family. And I belong to them, not because of something I've done, but because of something that God has done on my behalf for me because he loves me, because he's for me. And then uh, lastly, if you uh, have already been baptized, as I already mentioned, to come on out to show incredible support to those that will be taking that incredible, amazing step of faith and plunge to do that. Um, and I'm, I think I'm I think I'm done. Oh, what I want to do right now is I want to invite y'all to stand, and I want to pray with you. Because it's Mother's Day. We're ending a little bit early. You're welcome. It's freebie. Anyways, um, let me pray.
Jesus, we thank you so much for your love and for what you've done for us, how you've shown us kindness and goodness. We don't deserve it, but God, you in your goodness, because you overflow with it, uh, have been generous with who you are and what you are able to create and produce. God, we thank you that we can be recipients of that and that would transform and change our lives and our future and our current state right now where we're at. God, I pray for anybody here this morning that may, might be far from you or making, trying to make sense of, of who you are and, and what you are calling them into. And I pray, God, right now that you, by your love, would draw them. Thank you, Father, that you don't use guilt or shame, but you draw us by way of love. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would draw people to yourself in ways that you alone can do. Thank you for our time together here. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, Amen.